Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifices fools do. For they ignorantly do wrong. Do not be hasty to speak. And do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it. Because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you, and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why would God, why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? For many dreams bring futility, so do many words. Therefore, fear God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. And Lord, I pray that as we unpack these words today, that you would speak to our hearts. Show us what it means to worship you. Not in a meaningless way, but in a meaningful way that is saturated with Jesus. Do that work in our lives today. Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is meaningful worship? What is it? And who should worship be meaningful to? Those are important questions that demand answers, especially in a day when so many churches are divided over the answers to these particular issues and these particular questions. Christians today have all kinds of debates over hymns versus modern songs, organs versus guitars, celebrative or contemplative. And so, how do we answer these questions? And it's good to understand some church history here. Because this really, this issue is really nothing new under the sun. As Solomon would say from Ecclesiastes, <laughs> there ain't nothing new under the sun. I think back to the era of Isaac Watts in the early 1700s. You may not know the name, maybe you've heard of the name Isaac Watts, but Isaac Watts is the author of many of our greatest hymns, such as When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. I love that song. And we sing him every Christmas, A Joy to the Worlds. We sing that song then too. But in the 1700s, many considered him to be a heretic. Because the tradition in the churches of that particular time frame was that we open the psalms and sing only what we find in the psalms. That's all that we sing. And the words of the songs had better come directly from the Psalter and be sung just like we sing it. Or we are singing heresy. And so many in that day said, Isaac Watts, even though you have good theology, even though your words might say truth, we think your modern melodies and deep theology are out of step with our tradition, with our understanding. And many condemned the author of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Many condemned the author 
of joy to the world. Many condemned the author of the song, At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. They condemned him as a heretic and said no. Now, thankfully, nobody could keep back Isaac Watts. <laughs> and Isaac Watts kept on writing and kept on singing and kept on leading and kept on at it. And we sing many of his songs today. I think too often we get meaningful worship wrong because we're asking some of the wrong questions. Should we be of traditional hymns or should we be of modern music? What is the answer? The answer is yes. <laughs> We should be of both as long as they are biblical, as long as they are singable, and as long as they are connected to the way our culture understands music. What do I mean by that last one? Well, let me unpack the first couple really quick. What do I mean by biblical? We ought to sing songs that if it ain't the Bible, then write theology. We don't sing them. And if they are, then they meet the first criteria. All of the songs that we sing as a church must be saturated with Bible. And if you cut them, they bleed Bibline. <laughs> as Spurgeon once said, they bleed Bible. Second, they should be singable. We should sing songs that are singable by the congregation. That you shouldn't have some, have to have some incredible singing voice that can hit all of the high pitches or all of the low in order to sing those songs. They should be singable. And then they should also be culturally connected. What do I mean by that? So there are some of the songs that we sing that don't make much sense in the African tribal church. It wouldn't make any sense to them. And I've been there. I've been in Uganda and taught there. I've been in Ecuador and sang with some of their, the instruments le, uh, led our, leading, leading in our singing by the Quichuan Indians. And they don't even speak Spanish. They speak the Quichuan mountain language related to the ancient languages of the Incas and the Aztecs. And they wouldn't sing songs that we would even know what to do with. <laughs> with notes that we don't even have in our eight-note scale here in the West. Same thing is true in East Asia. East Asian music is largely based upon a pentatonic scale, a five-note scale. Wouldn't even know how to sing some of the songs that we have and treasure so dearly. They don't even have notes in their writing to be able to convey that kind of music. I have a suspicion that worship in heaven is much more lively and much more varied than we might anticipate with all of the cultures, all of the languages gathered around the throne. What makes meaningful or what makes worship meaningful to me? I think that is the wrong question. What makes worshipful meaning to me, meaningful to me, I think, is the wrong question if we're asking that question. The right question that we should ask first and foremost is what makes worship meaningful to God? What makes worshipful meaningful to God? And then when we engage in worship that is meaningful to God, then He invites us into His presence, invites us into worship of the Almighty. And it is in those moments that it becomes meaningful and transformative to our hearts. What is it that our worship offers to 
God. Here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon is turning his attention to the worshiper. He's observed the worker. He's observed the academic. He has observed the world. And he has offered his critique of how they're going through the motions and in a meaningless, in a meaning, meaningless way. And now he is turning his attention to the worshiper and he's asking the question, what is it that makes worshipful, worship meaningful, especially unto God? I love what Darren, Derek Kidner says in his commentary, excellent commentary. He says the following, this writer's target is the well-meaning person who likes a good sing and turns up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens with half an ear and never quite get around to what he has volunteered to do for God. Isn't that the central problem in so much of Christianity in the West today that we try to make it all about the feel goodies but it's not about God and His Word and what He has called us to do love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself that is what it means to worship and honor God it's actually the opposite. What Darren Kinder is pointing out here and what Solomon is pointing out here is exactly the worship, the opposite of the worship that Jesus talked about. Jesus said that God seeks worshipers that worship Him in spirit and in truth. All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. Loving God and loving neighbor. That is true worship. From Solomon's description here of meaningless worship, I want to point out four aspects of meaningful worship. Four aspects of what does it mean to have meaningful worship here on this side of the cross, here on this side of the New Testament that we live in today as the church. How do we have meaningful worship? Worship that's meaningful first and foremost to God because it's all about Him. And then as we worship Him and are drawn into His presence, it's transformative in our lives. Number one is this. What makes meaningful worship? Number one, to experience meaningful worship worship focus on the cross to experience meaningful worship the worship is not about me it's about the cross of christ in verse one solomon begins with a warning guard your steps when going to the house of god better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice of fools it seems somebody, he's observing somebody going up to the temple in that day before Christ. They were walking up to the temple, perhaps going there to offer sacrifice, perhaps going there to worship God in those moments. And they were making a sacrifice, but they were just going through the motions. They were just going through, hey, this is what we've always done. But their heart wasn't in it. Their mind wasn't in it. Their soul wasn't in it. Their, all of their being wasn't there worshiping God. Too often we think that in our lives we are making meaningful sacrifices to God. As if we are somehow paying God. You may go to church once a month when you don't have anything else going on. If you have extra money, you might drop a 20 in the offering. 
You may surf to the worship music that makes you feel good. I like this worship music over here. And then you, you surf on over to the sermon that makes you feel good over there. And I like this and I like this. And we treat our worship the same that we do our hamburgers because I like the burger better over here and I like the french fries better over there. And so oftentimes in our culture today, we've developed consumeristic Christians that are not true worshipers. Is that obedience? Is that sacrifice? Is it really just kind of a, a tipping God, so to speak? Just making sure you cover all of your bases so that maybe you're set for eternity? That kind of half-hearted worship is not just spoken about in the Old Testament. It is also spoken about in the New Testament very loudly and very clearly, especially in the letters to the seven churches at the book of Revelation, especially in the letter to the church of Laodicea. In that particular letter, Revelation chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus says to the church, He says, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. It's not just an Old Testament issue. But here's the key. You cannot sacrifice enough to be right with God. You cannot sacrifice enough to be right with God. And the good news of the Gospel and true worship is when we get out of the way and when we recognize fully and freely it's not about my sacrifice at all. It's about the sacrifice that Jesus has already made for me. The perfect sacrifice, the perfect worship, the perfect life. And in fact, our worship that we offer on Sunday morning, imperfect as it is, and even throughout our life, imperfect as it is, is acceptable to God, not because of our worship, but because He has already offered the perfect worship. And we trust in Jesus' perfect worship on our behalf in His life, His death, and His resurrection. He has already offered the perfect worship. And as we receive his perfect worship he calls us into a life of obedience and worship of God in response and following what he has already done for us that is the good news of the gospel meaningful worship comes not from a focus on what we have to offer to God but what he has already done for us it comes from a relentless focus on the sacrifice of Jesus I think that's why taking the Lord's Supper is so important. Because the Lord's Supper is not just something, ah, oh, we got to do it, so let's do it once a quarter. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> the Lord's Supper is a deeply meaningful reminder that Jesus is our sustenance, that Jesus is our life, that the only reason I'm saved is because I am in Christ and Christ is in me and I need Jesus as my food every single day. He is real food. He is real drink. And I am accepted to God not because of my sacrifice that I offer to God, but because He has already offered, offered the perfect sacrifice for my sins. And everything that I do to worship Him in response is made good because of His shed blood and His broken body on the cross. Our worship must be relentlessly Christ-focused, Christ-centered, cross-focused, cross-centered. If you want to experience meaningful worship, focus on the cross. Focus on the cross and the Lord's Supper. 
Focus on the cross in song. Focus on the cross in the Word. Anticipate the cross in the Old Testament sacrifices. Kneel at the cross in the Gospels. And then take up your cross and follow Jesus to the nations in the epistles and all the way to the book of Revelation. When we will gather around the throne in worship, worshiping the sacrificed Lamb who has been risen again from the grave, that Lion from the tribe of Judah who gave His life as a ransom for many so that you you would be set free from this world and free from ourselves and free from trying to work ourselves to be acceptable to God. And we are acceptable to God because Jesus paid it all. And all to Him we owe. It is the song that we will sing for the ages. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus first to last, beginning to end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. It is all about Him. It's all about Jesus. First of all, if you want to have meaningful worship, focus on the cross of Christ. Secondly, second aspect of meaningful worship we see from this passage. Notice we won't see much about notes or some music in here. We're actually seeing a lot about heart. Number two, to experience meaningful worship, listen to the word of Christ. Listen to the word of Christ. Look at verse two and three again. In verse two, he says, don't be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. Meaningless words. Lots of words. That's what Solomon was observing as he was observing worship at the temple during his time. Meaningless words like meaningless daydreams, he says. It's not about, when we come to worship, it's not primarily, first and foremost, what we have to say to God, but first and foremost, it's listening to what God has to say to us about Himself and about us, and in responding to what He has spoken to us in His Word. Yes, of course, we talk to God. Yes, of course, we want to express our hearts to God in prayer, but first and foremost, we need our hearts and our souls to be saturated and formed by the Word of God by the very truth of God more than the opinions of our time more than what people are saying on Facebook and Twitter more than what we see in our culture more than what this world is saying when we come together the reason why in Protestant churches that the pulpit is at the center of, of the room even in our architectures it is a reminder that the word is at the center of our worship that when we worship God, we are here to hear a word from God. And worship didn't end when the choir sat down this morning. <laughs> worship continues even now as we say, Word of God, speak. We need you. We need to hear a word from the Lord. The New Testament says it like this in James chapter 1, verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to anger. I know that applies to all of our lives, but I think that applies to our worship as well. We ought to be quick to listen. Listen to the voice of the Lord. 
Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit when He speaks to our hearts. How do we listen to God? How do we listen to God when we come together to worship our Christ, when we come to worship our Savior together? Come, come with high expectations. Come to church with high expectations that I expect God to speak today. I expect to hear a word from the Lord today. Come with high expectations. Don't come just because it's my tradition or don't come because Grandma wants me to be there, but come because I'm going to hear from God. I want to hear a word from the Lord today. I need the Lord to speak into my life. Listen with your Bible open or your Bible turned on. However it works for you. <laughs> listen, to, listen with your Bible open. Check to make sure what I'm saying is true. Make sure what the preacher is saying is what God says. If you use technology, make sure to not be distracted by other apps. I'm there with you. I am highly distractible. It's one of the reasons I do not preach from an iPad because I'm so dis- easily distracted. <laughs> I don't think it's wrong necessarily. I'm just too distractible. Paper doesn't change. <laughs> and, I, and I've seen iPads turn off in the middle of sermons <laughs> and run out of power. And so watch out for distractions. Focus as much as possible. Be there as, in the room as much as possible every single week to worship with the community of believers and look for Jesus in every single sermon. Always be looking for Christ. Always ask the preacher, Sir, may I see Jesus today? Let me see Jesus. What are you preaching about? Noah or Samson or in the gospel, sir? We must see Jesus. Look for Jesus in every single sermon. Look for Christ. Christ, and then ask yourself, how do I apply this sermon to my life in two ways? How does this sermon teach me to love God more, and how does this sermon teach me to love neighbor more? Love God and love neighbor. How does this, how does this text show me how to do that? God, help me to do that more this week. Because of your acceptable sacrifice, Lord, help me to live out a sacrifice of worship to your name. Lord, help us to hear. Help us to hear. Obedience is critical to listening. In fact, if you don't obey God's word, you're not really listening. In the Old Testament, the people of God would often quote what was called the Shema. The Shema, Shema is the Hebrew word that means hear. It's the first word in the verse that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall worship the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Hear, hear, Shema. What is that word Shema? That word Shema means two things. It means to listen, and it means to obey. You haven't Shema'd unless you have obeyed. It's not just about having it go in one ear and out the other, but it is about transformative gospel, real life change. That brings us to point number three. How do we get real worship? How do we experience real worship? How do we have meaningful worship to God and therefore by us to experience meaningful worship? Number three, obey the commands of Christ. Obey the commands of Christ. I remember when I was a kid, sometimes mama would ask me to do something and I would nod my head in agreement. And then I would go and not do the things which she said. (laughs) And what would she say? She would look me in the eye and she'd say, Travis, are you yeah, yeah on me? (laughs) Did you say yeah, yeah, I hear? (laughs) 
If you didn't really hear, because to hear is to obey. If you don't obey, you're not really listening. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, Samuel says, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. It's about obedience. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not just some Old Testament idea of obedience, but Jesus himself says, if you really love me, this is what, how your life will be transformed. You will obey, you will keep my commandments. In verses 4 through 6, Solomon sees worshipers who are making half-hearted vows before God. They are making promises with their fingers crossed before God, hoping how, somehow God might just forget or just not take them seriously. But we see in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21 through 23, it says, if you make a vow before the Lord your God to the Lord your God, don't be slow to keep it because He will require it of you and it will be counted against you as sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, it will not be counted against you as sin. Be careful to do whatever comes from your lips because you have freely vowed what you promised to the Lord your God. I wonder how often we do this. God, if you just get me out of this, then I will. And you fill in the blank. God, if you just answer this prayer, I promise, and then fill in the blank. God, if you just forgive me this one last time, I will never, ever do that again. And we fill our words with, like we said last week, pie-crust pie crust promises. Mary Poppins says that they are easily made and easily broken. Now, we're not talking about perfectionism here. We're talking about authentic life of obedience. Don't, don't worry, I'm not talking about perfectionism here. If that were true, we would all be toast, right? All of us can look back over this last week and say, yeah, I didn't make it. I didn't live perfectly. I failed in many. I sinned in many, many ways. All of us would say that our need for God's grace is a reminder of why we need the Lord's table because Jesus has paid the sacrifice that makes us susceptible to God. But what I'm talking about here is a heart that seeks to grow, a heart that lives in continual repentance as a way of discipleship, a heart that longs to walk in the ways of Christ. Listen, growing in holiness and Christ-likeness is the pathway to meaningful worship. If you want to know meaningful worship, it will always involve obedience. It will always involve a growth in holiness. Not being satisfied with our sin, but constantly warring against sin in our lives. Spiritual warfare against sin is an act of of worship of the King and fuels meaningful worship that is meaningful to God and also draws us into more meaningful worship of the crucified Christ because we are reminded in our battle regularly of our continuing need every day for Jesus. 
We're reminded of our continuing need for the perfect one to cover our sins and empower our obedience in our lives. That is true worship. Listen, you will never experience long-track, long-term, meaningful worship in your church experience without growth and holiness. It is a vain pursuit. It is vanity to try to find meaning in the house of God without seeking to live the transformed walk of carrying the cross every day. Finally, how do we, how do we know meaningful worship? How do we experience meaningful worship? Number four, to experience meaningful worship, live in awe at the breathtaking holiness of Christ. Last phrase in chapter 5, verse 7 says, Therefore, fear God. This sentence anticipates Solomon's conclusion in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. It's a conclusion. He doesn't give it until chapter 12, chapter 12, and verses 13 and 14. He says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear involves an understanding that life and worship and word and obedience, none of it is meaningless. In fact, what we are doing here in this room this morning has cosmic forever meaning. It's not just a Sunday gathering that will be forgotten for the ages, but what we are doing today is spiritual warfare. It's real food and real drink and real life transformation and real eternities matter. It is of eternal significance and weight. And because of that, and not only an hour on Sunday morning, but all of life bears eternal significance. It calls us to live in fear of God. Not fear like trembling, oh my God, he's, oh my Lord, he's going, to, he's going to strike me down. But it is living in awe and reverence of the Almighty God who would love me and give himself for me. That is our heart of breathtaking worship of our Lord, living lives for the glory of God. If you want to experience meaningful worship, live in awe at the breathtaking holiness of Christ. Taking Jesus at his word in prayer, focusing your eyes on his holiness, loving the lost like he does, and seeking to grow in loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. That, my friends, is true worship of our Christ. We come now to the time of Lord's Supper. And during our time of response today, I want to encourage you to examine your heart. Focus on the Lord Jesus Christ as an act of our worship together. Where Jesus is at the center of it all. Jesus is the center of our worship. Jesus is the center of our hearts and lives. It is His holy sacrifice that makes us acceptable to God. It's His holy sacrifice that makes it when we approach God, He welcomes you as a father with open arms. Come, forgiveness full and free is offered, not because of your sacrifice, but because of the sacrifice already given. 
Let's examine our hearts during this time of response. And if you need to trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, let me encourage you. I would encourage you to make that response today when we sing here in a moment. Or if you just need to come and pray and prepare your heart for receiving the Lord's Supper, let me encourage you to do that. Let's spend a moment in silence, and then we'll pray, then we'll respond in song, then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Let me pray, and we'll spend a moment in silence. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for this passage that speaks to us about authentic worship, that it's not primarily about the notes on the page, but it's about our hearts. It's about our love for Christ above all and our love for people. And Lord, our focus on Jesus, the central focus of the ages. And so, Lord, I pray that you would transform our hearts, even now as we prepare for this centrality of the Lord's Supper in our gathering today, to remind ourselves Christ Jesus, broken for our sins, blood poured out on the cross in perfect obedience for our righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in our hearts. Help us to examine our souls. Are we worshiping in spirit and in truth? Do we listen and obey? Do we focus on the cross of Christ? Do we tremble at the holiness of God? Lord, I pray that you would solidify these things in our lives and prepare our hearts for remembering your love for us. In Jesus' name.